Hello and a very warm and festive welcome to the Trap One podcast, where we're unwrapping the latest Doctor Who audio annual, Dead on Arrival and Other Stories, by Paul Mars. I'm Conrad. I'm Denise. I'm Sai. And I'm Mark. Uh, regular listeners may remember that earlier this year, this team reviewed the Canine and Time Wake audio collections. So when we received a message from Mark inviting the three of us over to join him for a night of annual fun, and we'd check that wasn't a typo, we came right over. <laughs> so we're all gathered here at McManus Mansions, where millionaire podcast impresario Mark has just ascended the grand staircase, handing out a single satsuma to each of his staff before docking it from their wages. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. He doesn't pay them any wages. <laughs> uh, luckily, Cy Hart is here and feeling so festive that while going through his vintage annuals earlier, he decided to have a go at making the famous Blue Peter Advent Crown from coat hangers and original 70s tinsel before lighting all the candles. And before you could say, don't try this at home, Cy was outside offering homemade mince pies to all the firefighters. Good luck with the move, Cy. <laughs> <laughs> Denise joins us from snowy Norway, having disentangled herself from the heaving mass of bodies in her Scandinavian love sauna. <laughs> Baby, it's cold outside. So Denise has been demonstrating the Nordic art of warmth and comfort known as hygge and wowing us all with her magnificent new muff. <laughs> <laughs> and listen out for some visitations from the ghosts of Trap One past, present and future. We'll also be discussing the new costumes for Shuti Gatwa and Millie Gibson as the 15th Doctor and Ruby Sunday. And if you've still got room after all that, at the end of this podcast, you're all invited to the library where Sai will be giving us a bonus reading of Alien Mind Games, a fourth Doctor story from the Doctor Who 1981 annual. Phew, not, you know, not bad, not a bad spread from the Trap One house. You're spoiling us, Mr. Ambassador. God bless you, Mr. Comrade. God bless us each and every one. So here we are. We made it. We're nearly at Christmas, at the end of the year, and the last trap one of 2022. How are we all doing, my loves? I'm hanging on there, you know, looking forward for a little bit of time off, you know. But uh, yeah, cuddling with my pussycats and. Clearing away the snow and keeping the fire burning. Lovely and cosy. How about you, Si? I'm exhausted, but I'm yeah. still here. And that's the that'll, main thing. That'll do. That's the main thing. How about you, Mark? Yep, yep, very good. Um, had a, a great year of podcasting with everybody. And, uh, yep, looking forward to Christmas and looking forward to discussing this audio annual, which uh, they're always a treat. And it's always great to get this team back together to talk about them. Yeah, and this one's got a bit of a twist this time, so I'm looking forward to getting into that. And But before we get onto that, shall we uh, have a talk about the new costumes revealed uh, that were revealed on Saturday, the 17th of December? Now, we're recording this on the Monday. The world of Doctor Who, uh, you know, moves very, very fast these days. So we're just talking about the costume reveals that have, have happened this weekend. Who knows what's happened since then? Um, but first impressions, guys, what do you think of it? I love the boots. I absolutely love Shooty's mm. boots. That's my favourite bit of both the costumes. I love those. Oh, God, they're gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, I think it's it's a really, really nice sort of ensemble for the, for the Doctor. I think I, I prefer Doctor costumes where it's kind of a style of dressing rather than a fixed kind of costume throughout the run. So the way they did a bit with with Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi and, and you know, kind of changed it up a bit. So, yeah, hopefully it will lend itself to kind of, you know, different different tops underneath the coat and that kind of thing. So you see some uh, some variations in there. But I think it's going to have a nice silhouette, which is 
what you want from the doctor, I think, you know, kind of a very instantly recognizable look. Um, and I think, yeah, really, really suits Shooty Gatwa. So it's uh, really cool. Look forward to, uh, to seeing the uh, sort of coattails yeah. flapping as he's running along. That's always what uh, a doctor in a long coat always looks good when that, when that happens, I think. The orange was a surprise. <laughs> Did I imagine it? Or do the trousers actually unzip to be shorts? Or was that a cheese dream? It's just your mind, Denise. <laughs> Did I see a picture of him in the brown check shorts as well? Oh, you might be right. It's just my mind. Oh, you may well be right. <laughs> we'll have to check the pictures again now. Because that would be pretty cool. But, I mean, that shade of brown looks fabulous on him and that orange as well. It was brilliant. And did you notice the rings too? I mean, I've been wearing thumb rings for twenty years, and now the doctor's caught up with me. You know, You're a trendsetter. Do you have? But do you have nail tattoos? That's a new one. Uh, no, I can't even sit still long enough for my fingernails to dry. Should I ever paint them? So no. But I didn't see those. No, I didn't know nail tattoos were even a thing. So, and Ruby Sunday's looking fabulous too. Yep. I mean, I loved I loved the shorts. They looked a bit like Nissa's shorts from Snake Dance, didn't they? Uh, always a good callback. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it would point towards her being another contemporary Earth companion, I think, the costume that she's wearing, which I know is a Russell T. Davis is mm. very big on, isn't he, that you need an audience identification figure from contemporary Earth, and that's why Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones weren't very successful, because there wasn't any... <laughs> There wasn't a sort of contemporary viewpoint. Yeah, I think they look like a very stylish pair mm. between them. I, I was I'm really reminded, the picture of them sat on the steps really reminded me of Matt Smith and Karen Gillan being revealed for the first time and them sat together and beaming at each other. And so there's a bit of, looks like there's lots of chemistry between them and they just look really great together. The reveal video was nice as well. I liked how informal it was. It it wasn't like a sort of corporate thing. It was the two of them messing around in a car park with a with a phone camera, um, and that that really added a nice a nice element to it as well. I'm assuming that Ruby Sunday is going to change her outfits fairly regularly, as modern companions do. We don't want to go back to the J and T era when it comes to that sort of thing. I mean, can you imagine what that? Air hostess costume must have been like. <laughs> must have been minging, man. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I'm sure she'll be wearing stylish variations on on a theme. But I like her jacket. You know, the um sort of sheepskin lined denim jacket thingy. I think uh, if that gets a few wears, that would be good. Yeah, definitely. And overall, it feels very fun, very cute. And you, you can read just the thing that comes across most is you can really imagine a new generation of young fans about to really fall in love with these two. I really hope so, yeah. I mean, this is the first Doctor where I'm actually old enough to be the actor's mum. So <laughs> that's a bit of a thing. But, yeah, I'm older than both of their combined ages. So what are all these young people doing in my TARDIS? <laughs> And with any conversation about stylish doctors, John Pertwee is never far behind, which brings us to Dead on Arrival and Other Stories, the latest audio annual uh, written by Paul Mars. And this one's slightly different um, in format to the audio annuals we've reviewed before, um, which are readings of the annual short stories, because um, this time Paul Mars has adapted and fleshed out stories based on the Doctor Who annual comic strips. What do you make of that? 
it's a really interesting idea. Um, and um, I think Paul Mars really seizes it. So you, all you've got is these sort of six-page comic strips with not much story, not much chance to flesh out a story. And so Paul Mars sort of takes the bare bones that he's got there and really expands them um, very well, I think. Um, and it takes them, as we'll probably discuss shortly, um, in some quite interesting and different ways each with each one. Which I've I've found very very interesting, but he also really captures the feel of the nineteen sixties and seventies annuals, where everything is not quite right, as we discussed in the previous two that we've done, um, where things are slightly off. <laughs> things are slightly off. Well, you've got the right team for that, and <laughs> kicking us off with the first of the trilogy, which is Dead on Arrival from the 1975 annual narrated by Katie Manning. Denise, I believe you've got control of the molecular adjuster for that one. I have indeed, but I'm going to be very, very careful with it. So, yes, Katie Manning is reading this story. And my word, you know, she has got such an incredible infectious enthusiasm. It's an absolute joy to listen to her. The story starts off because they have to adjust their molecular structure because they are going to the planet Meslob, another fabulous Doctor Who annual word, which uh, has got very, very high gravity and the dominant species are giant snails. So, um, And they've been invited to a ball. Can you imagine? And, of course... Joe's very excited about uh, dancing with snails. And apparently, you know, she goes into the machine that the Doctor has, which has appeared in the TARDIS console room, and adjusts her molecular structure so that her her density is... Lo- I'm totally lost on the science on this. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, they come back to the TARDIS... And she, they have to return their molecular density to normal. And that's where it all goes a bit Pete Tong. Um, the TARDIS runs into some orange cosmic dust. There's a malfunction. The Doctor tries to put things on ultra boost to solve the problem. But Joe collapses and it all goes horribly wrong. Next thing we know, she wakes up in a park. But she's feeling a bit weird. And... Um, she hears some voices in the bushes, but they're really, really weird voices. And then she sees that they're reptiles in space armour and they're talking about their materialiser and how useless the Earth beings are and how they're going to take over the world. So, of course, Joe wants to go off to warn the Doctor and she realises they're actually she's only a couple of miles from Unit HQ And then she finds the Doctor heading into a church. So she follows him, she calls him, he can't hear her at all. And um, he's carrying a bunch of flowers. And so she goes into the church and she realises that not only is she floating and incorporeal, but she sees herself in the coffin and she screams. And this is, this must have been absolutely gripping to read as a, as a young kid. Um, the Doctor is in bits about her death and she believes at that point that she is actually a ghost. 
So she follows him back to Unit HQ. There's an alarm sounding. The Brigadier is there. There's a hole in the space-time continuum. The Doctor sets up a force field to try and stop anything coming through. Katie does a very good John Pertwee impression, I have to say. Um, He's <laughs> <laughs> really good. He really does. Mm. And, of course, you know, her voice and Joe Grant's voice are different. She always did a different voice for Joe, and she's still got that absolutely perfect as well. The Doctor turns off the force field, he collapses, but then suddenly he is also there with Joe. But as soon as they make it back into the TARDIS, they both become normal. So they take off, they go into the time-space continuum, which is one of the things that is a little bit wrong, isn't it? It's the space-time continuum, isn't it? Apparently the reason for it all is the cosmic dust sent Joe through the gap in the space-time continuum. She was in an alternative state, in an alternative dimension. Um, interestingly, Joe asks about, well, what happened when we were in the antimatter universe? Because that wasn't like this at all, was it? But that's all sort of, yeah, never mind about that. <laughs> Don't you worry about that, young, light, young lady. <laughs> but real Doctor and real Joe and alternative Doctor and alternative Joe live to fight another day. The Brigadier is very relieved and Joe makes the tea. Perfect. Absolutely loved that story. Oh, Thought it was too mm. Yeah, it feels very authentic. Yeah, going back into the history of the characters and things, which um, you don't usually get in the annuals. Yeah, and I enjoyed that bit about that you mentioned that reference about the three doctors and the antimatter universe. That actually isn't in the comic strip. That's one of Paul Mar's lovely additions, and I think that's been a pleasure for me mm. with these. Is just seeing the little touches he adds. Like, I mean, there was a line where he said. Uh, uh, you know, the doctor was rubbing his neck worriedly. Yes. And that's just, you know, a John Pertweeism that again isn't in the in the comic book, but he adds in. I just love all those details. Absolutely. Um this was a comic strip that I really loved when I was a kid. So Denise is absolutely right. Um the, the I always remember the image of Joe looking in her coffin and the the um speech bubble says, but that's something like but that's me. So I must be dead. And it's just as a kid, that's just really, oh my goodness, that's really shocking and scary and and bizarre. It's a, it's a really good choice, I think, of the first one to adapt. It's a great story. Definitely. I think because Paul Mars wrote the book, The Annual Years, so he's he's really examined and analysed these stories and kind of knows where, where they do need a bit of embellishment and a bit more explanation. Um, but also you can imagine him as a kid with a kind of writer's mind filling in the gaps and, and headcanoning things. Um, so it's perfect. But then also, you know, if you're a, if you're a pretty hardcore fan, you're reading this and you're thinking, but that isn't like the, the time when they went to another universe. So, so putting that mm. in there as a, as a sly little nod. And the other thing about the, uh, the molecular, uh, the molecular density machine, whatever it is, saying I'd never noticed it before, and that's like all the other stuff in the Pertwee era, <laughs> like the pull-out bed in Planet of the Daleks and things. I've never been there before, <laughs> but but you just take but the George takes in a it suddenly appeared. So there's a lot of really nice, affectionate uh, little nods to things like that. It's uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's really, really beautifully told. Isn't it? Yeah, he had, he adds in a vintage yellow roadster that again isn't yeah. in the comic strip at all, and it's like I just love mm -hmm. those beats. The idea that this village is is the nearest one to unit headquarters as well, you know, it really makes sense. You can imagine that being sort of a, a headcanon thing that he's 
he's decided, well, how did they end up in this village? Um, why did they arrive there? Oh, it must be the place where they, uh, you know, they go and get their, uh, they go if they want to, uh, you know, go out for lunch or something from uh, from work. Yeah, I just thought it was a really cracking start to this collection. It was really great story, really well told. And yeah, and as an introduction to, to this little collection of stories, I thought, yeah, couldn't have chosen anything better, really. Yeah, and and it's worth saying that Katie Manning, we're all so used to seeing Katie on, you know, on Twitter every day, giving us nice messages and being her usual dotty self. And But it's always easy to forget, like, what a brilliant voice actress. She really, really is. Like, the variety of the voices is fantastic. The alien voices were brilliant. I saw it in a one-woman show years ago, um, Me and Jezebel, it was called. Um, I'm sure lots of people have seen that. And again, I was re- I was thinking, oh, this will be nice, Katie Manning being lovely. But actually, I was astonished at all the different voices she could do. So it's a really nice reminder of... of, of Know, what she can do and she's a perf- perfect person to to read this story yeah as well because she she plays joe here the doctor the brigadier and the brulians is it are the aliens um this is like a modification on that but she's still kind of giving a performance so she's she does perform a wide variety of uh, of, of voices there and also on, on last week's episode we talked about a short story that she's written for the origin stories uh collection that's a really beautiful piece of writing as well. She really, you know, really is. Uh, it's obvious to say she's incredibly talented. You know, so. we're very lucky to have her. We really are. Yeah, absolute treasure in the Doctor Who world. And, I've yeah. heard if you see her at a convention, she goes along the queue giving everybody big hugs. It's definitely on my bucket list to get a Katie Manning hunk. Merry Christmas and a happy absolutely everything from me, Pete, uh, to everyone out there in Trap One Land. It's been a fantastic year with some really lovely people on the podcast. It's been great being able to talk about my beloved season 22 and the madness of the Nest Cottage Chronicles and animations and Jody and everything. Uh, and really excited, looking forward to the year that the Trap One unit guys' moustaches are going to be brought onto the Doctor's face for the first time. Um, did they have? They've got moustaches in my mind. I know. I think I've added moustaches to all the unit guys. It's B&M Bargains' fault. Have a nice new year. So next up, we go to the 1978 uh, annual um, for the story "The Traitor," narrated by John Culshaw. Where we're on Aurora Arctialis for a story of spaceship crash and grim revelations. So over to Mark, and remember, this is a holiday episode, so try and keep it light. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think uh, John Culshaw's narrated a few of these stories from the audio annuals, but uh, sort of, it's always seemed odd that he hasn't done a Tom Baker one because he's kind of famous, uh, you know, a lot of other things now, but early in his career in particular, he was famous for his, his Tom Baker impression. So it, it feels nice that he's finally got to do that. He's doing a fourth Doctor story and he's he's doing his, um, you know, his, his, his good sort of Tom Baker impersonation there. When I was these, I, I went and read the, the comic strips in the annuals first before I started listening to the stories, just get, get a sense of them and how they've been adapted. I was really surprised how Weirdly, this one is illustrated in the annuals. Um, <laughs> oh, yes, this one is very much in the um, anything goes <laughs> with artwork wise um, collection, I think, um, sort of era of those early Tom Baker annuals are, are very, very strange. Well, the, the other picture strip in, in the 1978 annual is called the, the Robot Rivals, I think. And it's really beautifully illustrated. And whether they spent too much time on that one and then 
didn't leave enough time to get this one finished. But it's almost, I would say, begrudgingly illustrated. Like wherever possible, they've they've avoided drawing any faces. And, and where you do get a picture of the Doctor, it's an immediately recognisable, like publicity shot or a, a well-known shot from a from a TV story that's just been sort of traced or, or copied or something. Um, but mostly they, they like to have a picture of a, a ship or a building just with speech bubbles coming out of it or a hand on a control or um, the doctor facing away from... Uh, yes, yeah, so, so uh, <laughs> Conrad's showing a sort of a sample page at the moment and uh, it's, it's very low on faces, very uh, very scarce, <laughs> scarce on faces. So there's the doctor sort of facing away from us and working on things to, to avoid drawing it. <laughs> Uh, so we just get kind of a lot of shapes and things. So, so that was really interesting, and it, and it leaves a lot, I suppose, for then Paul Myers to describe, uh, to, to to flesh out the story a lot. Um, so yeah, say Doctor Who and Sarah are watching a rare alignment of stars when they witness a spaceship crash on a nearby planet. They follow in the TARDIS and help to rescue the survivors just before some robots come along and blow up the remains of the ship. These poor unfortunates tell the Doctor that they are scientists who are being held hostage on this planet by the Locans. And poor sweet summer child that the Doctor is, he believes them. Hook, line and sinker uh, that these are just innocent scientists. Because obviously the, the setup is, you know, they've just seen the spaceship crash and then been blown up by robots. So why would it be anything else? If they were prisoners on the planet, you wouldn't do something as resource intensive as fire a, a spaceship at a planet and then blow it up. You would have a reusable spaceship, wouldn't you, that you could you could eject the prisoners from and then it would take off again so you could use it again. Um, so he doesn't even suspect that that would be a thing. Uh, so they, uh, they, they hatch a plan to to nobble the Locan's robots so that they'll need to send a manned craft down to come and uh, come repair them at which point they will be able to sort of steal that ship and the, the the scientists will be able to take off which they do but only after these uh these scientists have killed some of the uh, some of the maintenance crew which is an addition from the comic strip in the comic strip they just knock them over the head and 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 knock them out Although the, the one picture of that does look really brutal. Um, you just really whack this guy across the top of the head. Um, in one of the more more vivid uh, illustrations that are in there. Uh, but yeah, Paul Mars has, has fleshed it out a bit and actually killed some of them, which, which does give the Doctor pause for thought. Sarah's already had a bit of pause for thought. She's thought, mm, we, have just, we have just taken this on trust. The Doctor doesn't suspect anything until they're basically stoving the uh, the people's heads in. And when they take off, and one of the ones who hasn't been killed wakes up and goes, what have you done? Uh, they've, uh, they're on our planet, good-looking people are good, and sort of criminally insane monsters are ugly. Uh, and these are criminally insane monsters, but only on this planet with the three suns do they turn into normal scientists, so we keep them here. And then we get a little bit of classic Doctor Who, not sure what the difference is between a solar system or a galaxy or, <laughs> or anything else. So Sarah says, so if they leave this galaxy, then they'll turn back into monsters. And you think, well, that's okay, because galaxies are absolutely massive. But it basically, I think, does mean solar system, uh, because it relies on the these three suns keeping them in check. But luckily, as they're flying away, they revert from being inarticulate monsters who the Doctor is talking to on the radio to sort of a brief moment of lucidity when the sun hits them. So they turn back 
and get captured again by the Lokans. And the traitor of the title turns out to be the Doctor because he's betrayed the scientist, which you didn't see coming, I think. Um, so he feels pretty bad about it. But even when they weren't monsters, they were killing people. They were bashing people's heads in with, with crude instruments. So they're not entirely uh, without fault. But also, I think the Lokans could find a better way of looking after... Um, they're mentally ill people than firing at a pl- firing them at a planet so the ship crashes and then if they survive that blowing the ship that ship up seconds later barely giving them time to to escape i think they could and then making them live in like just huts that they've had to build themselves yeah that is a bit harsh <laughs> proper facilities in place <laughs> maybe a slightly more comfortable uh, trip to, uh, to to this planet but yeah, it's, it's it's sort of an exciting story, and and Paul Mars has sort of layered in some some bits of intrigue because the opening bit where it says Sarah would always remember this beautiful scene of these three sons, but it would also remind them of the time they got it wrong. That that's kind of a, a nice little bit of foreshadowing, and and there is more threat, I think, because we've actually seen uh, these guys kill people as well. So uh, yeah, so it's, it's an interesting story. And it's, uh, yeah, kind of a, a bit weighty of what uh, the Doctor thinks about, you know, kind of what's happened at the end of it. And uh, it just, just seem to affect him. So, yeah, uh, a, a good one, I think. A good adaptation, definitely. Thank you, Mark. I'd, uh, I'd actually forgotten how literal Mark is. And I'm now remembering the Canine and Company review where every story, Mark was like, why don't they call the police? <laughs> oh god i'm so tired i'm so very tired <laughs> and that's the artwork mark just so uh, i can bring some 71970s expertise and explanation and insights into this artwork it's because everyone was on mushrooms <laughs> <laughs> there there were some nice um linguistic flourishes. the last line i think is the life of the mind is the true freedom and you know that's true isn't it mark yeah, no, it it is, but you've got to survive the trip there to, to have a life in. Of well, yes, yes. <laughs> I have to admit, I got a bit lost listening to this story, and I had trouble following it. I don't know why. Maybe I was just not concentrating enough, or not in a mid nineteen or late nineteen seventies sort of quite right mindset. So, um, yeah, thank you very much for the very clear explanation. You and need narration. more mushrooms. Yeah, that could well be it, Denise. I think that might might have helped. <laughs> <laughs> it did feel, it's funny, what, well, the first one did feel, the John Pertwee one felt very authentically of that era. Um, this one, it, it it reminds me, it was like, there's a, it's quite Terry Nation, you know, with mutations and, and crashes, mm. and, you know, stranded on, on hostile planets um and it but it was a bit sort of maybe a bit of genesis of the daleks maybe a little bit of blake seven in there it was it was veering towards the the more gritty and adults yes it, it was it was dark wasn't it but more terry nation than philip hinchcliffe for sure yeah it just occurred to me that i suppose it's a bit like Michael and hyde as well isn't it it's maybe kind of a you know sort of slight take on that of that thing mm. oh could yeah mm-hmm don't mention Planet of Evil or so will be off. <laughs> <laughs> what did you make of John Coleshaw's sort of uh, narration of it, Mark? Yeah, I thought it was really good. And, and yeah, as I say, I, I, I really like hearing him uh, play Tom Baker as well. I used to love those sketches that he did when, uh, you know, when he phoned Sylvester McCoy and, uh, <laughs> and things like that as Tom Baker. They, they, were, they were brilliant back in the day. So, yeah, it was good, it was good to hear him doing that again. 
uh, and he's he's been playing the Brigadier for Big Finish now, and he's also played sort of Anthony Ainley's Master for Big Finish and stuff. So, uh, and I think in the the sort of behind the scenes interview on those, you you get his his love and his passion for for Doctor Who. He's kind of a lifelong fan. And I think even from those old Dead Ringer sketches, the stuff he was saying was stuff from the series. You know, he, he kind of clearly knew his. Stuff. Yeah, he knew his stuff, didn't he? Yeah, so it's like the, yeah, he'd get the. The technology names right, and yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So it seems like he's really enjoying this as well. I think that that comes through. So he probably grew up on these annuals as well. Very nice. So this what this one, Mark. Overall, how would you how do you rate this one? I think probably it's the the weakest one of the set, or the maybe the maybe the least exciting, least authentic. Although the next one's not very authentic to the year either, but it's it is quite an exciting story. Yeah, it's kind of kind of murky this one, isn't it? And uh, yeah, the the doctor getting it wrong a little bit, but but understandably because he's you know he does want to help people where he can and he fight for the oppressed and everything. But yeah, it's uh, but it's odd to see the doctor being uh, duped in a way. But yeah, an, an interesting one. I think all three stories are, are very very good. I bring you greetings from all Dalek. Hello and a very happy Hanukkah and Merry Christmas and happy holiday season to all of my friends on the Trap One podcast. This is Jason, your occasional Trap One co-host and panelist and also the host of the Doctor Who Literature podcast. Wishing a very, very, very happy holiday season to all of my friends on Trap One, and I am looking forward to many more appearances on this show in 2023. Looking forward to many of my Trap One friends also appearing on Doctor Who Literature, my side project. And, to quote William Hartnell, and incidentally, a happy Christmas to all of you at home. Which brings us next on to The Power uh, from the 1979 annual, narrated by Tim Trelaw. And uh, and Cy has been invited to a coronation on the planet Shem. Well, I have. And um, I was very impressed that this one was um, narrated by a third party, which was quite a different way of um, sort of dealing with this. So we've got um, a bystander who is narrating the story of the time he went to Princess Azula's coronation. Azula? <laughs> so we've got all the tribes of Shem on are in one place together. Um, and Orga, the leader of the Monashem, and Zig, the leader of the Ragashem, are instantly at each other's throats. They are not friends. And they don't um, really believe that Princess Azula should be crowned. And so, unfortunately, Doctor Who chooses the wrong moment to arrive and the TARDIS arrives and that is enough for Zig to viciously stab Orga, leader of the Monoshem, and kill him and declare himself the rightful ruler of all the Shem. Very quickly bypassing poor old Princess Azula, who is then whisked away by her guard to safety. 
but Doctor Who has arrived ready for this coronation in a lovely velvet suit. He is dressed for the occasion. And Leela, um, who you'll remember for her animal skins and her very, very careful savage look, is dressed in a suede trouser suit. Because why not? It's 1979. I am. <laughs> Perhaps it was a bit nippy out. Well, it might well have been. But unfortunately, Zig is a ghastly blowhard. Basically, he declares that he, as well as now being leader, he is also um, the um, judge of um, of justice on this planet and is now head of justice. And so he finds the doctor has to go on trial and he throws him into a pit full of nightmarish creatures. Um, Leela is slavered over by porcine monsters all around her. That's the porgs. Mm. So Doctor Who is in the pit fighting his way out and all Zig wants to know is what is the secret of the power luckily for Doctor Who he's able to get away because he's remembered that the present he has brought for lovely Princess Azula for her coronation is an anti-gravity belt that he's been wearing all day and it's so uncomfortable he's even forgotten that he is wearing it so he eventually gets the hang of flying with the anti-gravity belt and um, he uh, manages to get out of the pits with this. Princess Azula declares the power is in a book and Zig cannot believe this because how could any power be written down in words in a book? Zig will not share the power, but Princess Azula has it. She knows the secret. So... But Zig takes to the skies to battle with Doctor Who because he's got great big wings. But the Doctor manages to do something very clever with his anti-gravity belt and deflect the rays against Zig. And unfortunately, he accidentally pushes Zig off a cliff (laughs) where he falls down and dies horribly. But anyway, Princess Azula is crowned and the secret of the book, well, you'll never guess. The book is blank it's all been a bit of a trick and so the doctor has tricked everyone but he tells her that the best best kind of book is a blank book because you can write whatever story comes next that's lovely it is it's a lovely story in the 1979 annual the artwork on this one is absolutely beautiful it's really lovely and um, there's some beautiful depictions of Tom Baker, who seems to be under his velvet suit in this story, wearing his deadly assassin um, costume. He's got the great big billowing sleeves. And when he's taken to the air, he looks magnificent. Um, so I thought this was a really, really good um, adaptation of, of what's quite a slight story. So Paul Masters does a really good job of um, expanding this. And I really like the twist with the book. And um, but poor old Princess Azula, she doesn't get to do very much, and nor does Leela. I mean, Leela is a really proactive companion, and for her to be, I, I like the bit at the end where Paul Mars says, and Leela reflected that um, this was the kind of adventure she would really have liked with lots of creatures to fight and a big trial, and all she got was um, tied up and slavered on by pigs. <laughs> great. In a way, it struck me it was a little bit like uh, one of the Peladon stories. But, um, you know, you can imagine with uh, with the young princess yeah, and think... all the rest of it. 
yeah, and being thrown into a pit and there being a creature down there. That could easily have been Agador down there, couldn't it? And and I love that they're they're really great annual names, the Monoshem and the Ragashem on the planet of Shem and all the different tribes. It was really good. I noticed that um, Tim Trelaw, I didn't know who he was, but he plays um, the third Doctor in um, big, some big Finnish stories. And I think he also does a very good Tom Baker when the need arises. I love the way he says, Princess Azula. I thought that was excellent. Yes, he got that perfectly right. I, yeah, he narrated it really nicely, I thought. So it was, he's got a really nice sort of, He's slightly. I think he's Welsh. He's isn't very he? Welsh. And, yeah, and you can you can hear that. I think in a lot of the narration, it, it was very soft and beautiful. It was really nicely read. Yes, and there's some uh, nice touches as well, like when the Doctor's fighting. It says, "What is it about him that brought these absolute maniacs into his life?" And you know, we've all felt like that, haven't we? I feel like that now. <laughs> The opening reminded me of the Mythmakers. It's like that the TARDIS being a bit mischievous, landing in the middle of a fight, distracting one party so that uh, so that they get killed. Because that's what happens um, at, at the opening of the Mythmakers as well, isn't it? That the the TARDIS's arrival. I can't remember who it is now. Does Paris kill Hector or somebody? I can't quite remember who it was, but um, there's uh, yeah the the. the the, the TARDIS uh, <laughs> it directly causes somebody's death, as it does at the beginning of this one as well. Um, but the whole thing felt like it might have been inspired by both Star Wars and Flash Gordon. Yeah. Uh, the, the the kind of the power being a bit like the Force, and then the Hawkman being uh, inspired maybe by Brian Blessed. Felt like maybe the uh, the writer had been uh, been watching uh, some some of the other than Doctor Who that, that week. Yeah, I think you're bang on the money with that because when I saw the uh, when I saw the Doctor was thrown down a pit um, and a giant, you know, thrown to a giant creature down there, I immediately thought of the Rancor monster in Star Wars. But then, but although it was before that, but actually that was based on Flash Gordon stuff, oh, which yeah, was borrowed from Star Wars borrowed. So it's all all in the mix. So I think I think the Star Wars Flash Gordon thing is absolutely is bang on. Yeah, and I think there was um sort of quite a tendency in the annuals in the late seventies to do sort of more fantasy-style stories, lots of swords and lots of big battles. So I think one of the ones we did in um, one of the other annuals was very much like that, the one with the Nightmare Ray, where they're um, having to go and do um, gladiatorial games and fight each other with swords and the Doctor oh, yes, I turns, yeah. turns evil. So there's all that sort of feeling as well. So this is very much sort of like that. And there's a picture of the Doctor with his fists up ready to fight the monsters and things like that. So it's all, yeah, it sort of all ties in, in with that. It's very much of its its time. Because now we've had Porgs in Star Wars. So initially I was picturing the Porgs from The Last Jedi, but they're not as threatening as the porcine animals. Yeah, a giant in this story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when we talked about Time Wake last time, uh, I think there's a couple of stories where I was saying that the Doctor doesn't really act like the Doctor in terms of like the first Doctor story where he turns up and he's horrified by these aliens that don't look human and things like that. Whereas the the addition of the Doctor's remorse in this story at, uh, at killing the the guy with the wings, I forgot his name, Magishen, was it? Uh, he's that that you know that addition that from the original that was Zig leader, Zig, of- so, yeah. So, mm-hmm. so the addition of, of the Doctor's remorse of that is 
you know, Paul Mars kind of make, you know, bringing the character back in line with the a more recognizable one than, than maybe in the comic strip. Hello there, a very festive greeting here from Bearded Geek Towers. Yes, it's UK Jason. I'd just like to wish all our Trap One listeners and my fellow Trap One co-hosts an absolutely Merry Christmas and a wonderful Happy New Year for 2023. It's going to be absolutely amazing with the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who. Lots of surprises around the corner and lots of great podcasts to come. You can find me at Bearded Geek Toy Reviews on the YouTube channel and you can also find me on Twitter at DjangoMax72. Have a great one and we'll see you soon. So that was Dead on Arrival and Other Stories Audio Annual by Paul Mars. Um, So overall, what do we think of this one, gang? Okay, um, well, I was a little bit wary at first because I was thinking, yes, they're adapting a comic strip, but, you know, it was brilliant because of the what was added to it with regards to backstory and adding in the different characterizations and the little hints and the nice phrasing and use of language i i thought it worked really really well and it means that um just because one of the stories in an annual was a comic strip it doesn't mean it can't be adapted to an audio annual and that's good news for me because uh, these are such fun to read and listen to and do so um yeah i really really liked it um of course there's only three stories on this one but as a bonus on this podcast, of course, we've got sides reading as well. So a little extra Christmas present for all of us. There's a real treat. That's, we said the best, saved the best till last there. <laughs> so, yeah, um, made me happy. Really, really enjoyed listening to the stories a couple of times over the last couple of weekends and um, being reacquainted with the strange names of planets and characters that only ever appear in Doctor Who annuals. Yeah, I'm the same. I absolutely love these CDs. So I think the fact that they can continue the range longer by adapting the comic strips as well. I think there's still a few prose stories they haven't adapted yet. When I was looking through these three, I know there's still a few they haven't done, but they can, uh, they, they can definitely make it last a bit longer with that and Paul Mars is the perfect person to adapt them as I was saying before he's really steeped in these annuals he's written about them he's got a clear love for them and the types of stories and the and the way you know all of them the doctor who the doctor refers to himself as doctor who which I think is something Paul Mars quite likes as well in his recent book the return of Robin Hood he had the doctor uh, introducing himself as Doctor Who and things as well. So, uh, you know, it's definitely something that you get a lot in the annuals. Uh, so that's uh, so that's a really cool thing. And the, the cover art for the for the sets are always really good. And, and this one is, is no exception. Uh, it's a really striking cover um, with uh, sort of John Pertwee front and centre uh, in a kind of classic John Pertwee hands on hips pose. And you've got you've got the fourth Doctor and Joe there as well. Um, so yeah, really kind of. Uh, I don't think these they're, they're not images that are taken from the annuals, but they're they're very kind of comic strip, kind of cool cool art there on there as well. So um, yeah, uh, I think as far as I'm concerned, yeah, a few more of these would uh, would, would be really good to see. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I thoroughly enjoyed them, and as a mark of sort of the authenticity of this, I was listening to the power for the second time this evening here at home before we recorded this. 
and um, Steve was here with me, and he was absolutely convinced it was an actual story from one of the the annuals, sort of um, being read out. So, Paul Mars, you got the you got it absolutely right. You fooled some of the people some of the time, and that's that's enough. So no, um, I think this is a lovely, lovely thing. And so it opens up stories that we might not have got before, which is good. And there are some great comic strips that you can adapt. And if, um, Paul, you want to do um, Every Dog Has Its Day from the 1981 annual, which is um, a hero piece for canine, I would be absolutely (laughs) delighted to hear that. And I'm sure John Leeson would bring that to life beautifully. Excellent idea. Um, and I think, I believe that there's another, the next audio annual has been announced, if I've got this right. Um, in April, uh, they're going to be releasing an audio annual of the Amazing World of Doctor Who annual um, that came out with the Typhoon Tea promotion, which is absolutely 100% where I live. So I'm very excited about that one. Ooh. So perhaps we should brew up and return for another Yeah, definitely. And that is a threat. I'd be up for that. For sure. Almost rude not to, isn't it? And while we all get into our pyjamas and settle in for size reading, um, and given that the social media platforms are falling around apart around our ears, um, where can we find everyone? Mark, where does Trap One live these days? Talk us through it. Yes, yeah, so Trap One is on Twitter as at Trap One underscore. On Mastodon, it is just at Trap One, because there wasn't another Trap One, so I didn't have to put an underscore at the end of it. Uh, you also find us on, on Facebook and Instagram. And you can find the podcast at trapone.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Lovely. Denise, where can we we find you? Well, I am still hanging in there on Twitter and I am at cupoftea69. I also have joined um, Mastodon. I'm on the same server as Trapone, so I am at denisery at toot.community. So that's where I'm hanging out. Um, there's a link to my WordPress blog on my Twitter bio. And um, I don't really have much time for my channels, really. But, uh, yeah, that's where I live. Lovely. How about you, Si? Um, I haven't adopted any other home on social media yet. So I'm waiting to see how this goes um, because I found all the other ones a bit scary and weird and couldn't get my head around them. I'm still on Twitter as at um, Cy underscore heart. You can also find me on Instagram. I do use Instagram um, and um, as the same username. So you'll find me there too. Lovely. I haven't made the leap to Mastodon either, so I'm still on at Hair of the Hound underscore um, on Twitter. And you can also find me on the sofa glugging large quantities of Baileys, shoveling mince pies and Quality Street into my face. I'm saying like I haven't started that already. I started two weeks ago and I don't care. Um, Have you got some Rennie in? Yeah, it'll be Rennie's and Gaviscon in the new year for me. <laughs> um, so stick around for this lovely reading from Sire. I listened to it earlier and it's absolutely gorgeous. But from all of us here... Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us for the last ever Trap One podcast of 2022. Uh, from the Trap One team, the two Jasons, Pete, Denise, Sai, and Conrad, all the fantastic that have joined us, and especially to all our great listeners uh, who are the best Doctor Who fans. Thank you very much, and we'll see you in the new year.
these days, we take it for granted that the Doctor's off having more adventures than we know about. But back in the early days, in the early 80s when I was very small, it was a real treat to read some of the Doctor's other adventures. And these came in the form of the Doctor Who annuals every year. Most Christmases, my Uncle Tim and my Auntie Sue would buy me the annuals for Christmas. And this tradition started in 1980, back when I was a very young fan, with the 1981 Doctor Who annual. With its swirling pink and purple cover, with a photo of Tom Baker from the Armageddon Factor. And inside, there was magical adventures we hadn't seen. It was all quite wonderful. So, I hope you'll enjoy this little glimpse of the joys of the 1981 annual. And join me as I read you the story of Doctor Who. Alien Mind Games. Doctor hovered over the console controls, his eyes flickering from one dial to another as he checked off the readings. Romana, her concentration focused on the instruments before her, was busy manipulating levers and buttons across the console from him, and even K9 had been pressed into service as they battled to keep the rolling TARDIS steady. How much longer, Doctor? asked Romana, strain showing on her face. Hard to say, replied the Doctor without looking up. Any chance of switching over to automatic yet, K9? The TARDIS buckled and wallowed as if riding on some tempestuous sea and they fought hard to keep their balance. K9's antenna whirled as he correlated the incoming data from the TARDIS information banks. Negative, Master. TARDIS still passing through area of antimatter. Automatic controls insufficiently programmed to deal with turbulence of this severity. Romana continued to wrestle with the controls, grimly determined. If we don't pass through soon, Doctor, one of us or the TARDIS itself is going to break down. The Doctor nodded silently, slowly, and resumed his work. Estimated limit of resistance to unnatural stress, K9 informed them in his unemotional tone, between 6.18 and 9.42 seconds. Probability rating, requested the Doctor, his hands doing the work of 10. 100% came the simple answer. The TARDIS will disintegrate the less conditions improve. And what's the bad news? responded the Doctor, not really smiling. The TARDIS had been locked in this life and death struggle for what seemed like hours, and the strain of unrelenting buffeting was beginning to tell on man and machine alike. It had been a routine trip given the usual idiosyncrasies of the TARDIS, and no warning had been given before they had plunged headlong into this apparently endless cloud of antimatter. A mirror image of the matter which makes up the normal universe, the antimatter was slowly but surely breaking through the protective shield of the TARDIS. In the usual meeting of matter with antimatter, each annihilates the other in a massive explosion of energy and radiation, but the TARDIS was equipped to deal with this phenomenon in short doses. An area of antimatter this big is unusual, and the abnormal circumstances were taking their toll on the TARDIS's limited defences. 
The crisis was closing and it would be swift and final when it happened. The two Time Lords were facing death as surely as they were facing each other across the console, but with no way left to turn. Hands locked to the controls, teeth clenched, eyes staring desperately as they frantically scanned their minds for a solution, the Doctor and Romana stuck to their task. Imperceptibly at first, then increasing, just just as a heavy object gaining momentum downhill, the TARDIS began to slide into a spin. All three of them felt it grow as if from within them. A force like a volcano, long dormant, building and building beneath the surface, until the power of the spiralling motion began to claw their fingers from the controls. Fingers grasping for a hold, bodies straining to resist the outward pull, the Doctor and Romana were slowly sucked away from the console. As each button and lever slipped outside their reach, the spin grew more pronounced, accelerating with each second in a steeply inclining progression. Loose objects flew to the walls and stuck there defying logic and gravity as they hung miraculously, effortlessly to a sheer vertical surface. The Doctor gave a cry and was sent crashing to the perimeter of the console room, as if thrust by a giant hand. Romana fought the thick crushing air, but it beat her down with a brutally firm pressure, until she too was catapulted against the wall. Alone, Canine stood firm at the centre of the deadly whirlpool, all his energies directed into his magnetic power units underneath his casing. A strangulated noise issued from his communicator. Destruction! Imminent, master! Canine's control panel glowed and went blank. The doctor, his face squashed almost flat by the contortions of the intense G-force, could only grunt, clutching with his pressurised lungs for each mouthful of air. Romana, too, stood pinned against the wall, her limbs frozen in a grotesque pattern of exquisite pain. Canine had irrevocably ceased to function. Blackness began to seep through their minds, flowing like a ripple of ebony liquid along their grooves and crevices of their thoughts. Sense perceptions faded, a thick black fog coating them with impenetrable layers of eternal night. Their very life was being squeezed from their bodies, drop by agonising drop into empty nothingness. Empty. Black. Nothing. The two Time Lords were dead. An infinity of black space stretched away before his eyes, as the atmosphere filled with a deep silence he could almost reach out and touch, and yet, the unmistakable sound of a breeze shimmering through the leaves came to his ears. Slowly, weightlessly, he turned his head through 180 degrees, towards the source of the noise. His head, he thought, felt like a planet slowly revolving on its axis to meet the sun, for as his eyes first caught sight of the strange phenomenon, floods of brilliant light burst across his face, a sun rising across his forehead, light chasing light over his shadowed features. Three pyramids made of some translucent material, their insides alive with pulsing iridescent lights hovered before him. As he watched, the three pyramids moved closer together, their bases meeting in a triangle, their apexes touching to form a many-faceted shape which began to revolve. Their lights played on the back of his eyes, their intricate interplay flashing messages along the nerve fibre to his brain. Suddenly he felt the sharp insight of recognition. The lights had spoken, hit some hidden code, translated language into light. He could understand them. We are the one. Welcome to our domain, Doctor. The Doctor's head raced with thoughts. Am I dead? Where is this place? This is not death. 
nor is it space, Doctor. This is my domain, the domain of anti-space, the reverse, the mirror image of your universe. Here we are lords of all, Doctor. We are the one. So you've told me. Do you have anywhere more comfortable in your domain where we can sit and talk? Asked the Doctor. It's very disconcerting, floating around in space without a spacesuit, passing the time of day with free talking pyramids with lights on. Doesn't happen every day. We are the one. We are all powerful. Behold. The Doctor's mind went instantly blank, and then almost immediately he began to feel the weight returning to his limbs, his body. A curious sensation, almost as if he were drifting down out of the sky, and his feet touched solid ground. His view rapidly cleared, layers of darkness slipping from his eyes until he could see he was once more inside the control room of the TARDIS. Or a TARDIS, at least. It was bathed in a warm blanket of red light which made the place at once familiar, yet also strange. Neutral territory, perhaps, on which the Doctor and the phenomenon that called itself the One could meet, a mid-ground between their two universes. The alien hovered in one corner of the room, as powerfully incandescent as before. Very clever. Do you know any other tricks? grinned the doctor, as he explored the control room. Does my machine still work? And where are my companions? You ask many questions. I'm naturally curious. It's the nature of the beast, replied the doctor, unhesitatingly, feeling more secure in his surroundings. He turned to face the pyramids again. Just as it is in your nature, I believe. If you were merely attacking my ship, I'd be dead by now. And since you're all-powerful, you'd hardly need me to do something for you. It follows that you saw me passing, and I aroused your interest. Very perceptive of you, Doctor. But then, we would expect nothing else from a Time Lord. The Doctor chewed thoughtfully on his lip, leaning back against the console. You know an awful lot about me. Have you been reading my mail again? The alien pyramids regrouped, revolved to another position, and moved horizontally through mid-air to a place adjacent to the Doctor at the console. How many other races in your universe have time travel apparatus such as this? The Doctor stared thoughtfully at the alien. Ah, so you've met other Time Lords, I presume, in order to be able to recognise me as one? Very good, Doctor. You impress me. We meet but few beings from the other side, from your universe. Only species with the secret of space-time travel may meet with us. There is no physical boundary you may simply approach and cross between the two universes, but I am able to pluck time travellers from their point in space when they, when they pass through areas that have in the past or will in the future be part of my domain. The Doctor moved away from the console and disappeared into a room off the main control room. Would you like some tea? His voice came through the open door, followed by the faint clatter of tea things. The doctor's face appeared round the side of the door. I would get some out of the automatic food dispensing machine, but I do so think making it in an earthenware teapot improves the flavour. He disappeared again. The pyramids hovered silently, patiently. The doctor came into the room, bearing a tray of cups, teapot, milk and sugar. I bet you've never seen a Time Lord do this, have you? He laid the things down inside a small transparent cube and turned to face the alien, rubbing his hands together. There now. Doesn't it feel more like home? I thought 22nd century Assam rather than the 16th century Kimon. Is that to your tastes? He returned the tea things and pulled a small sliding door shut on the cube.
One of the advantages of being a Time Lord, I built a mini TARDIS to brew my tea in. I simply pop the tray in, press the button, and whatever is on the tray advances into the future five minutes. And voila, instant freshly brewed tea. Quite ingenious, don't you think? The Doctor pressed the button and reached forward to retrieve the tea. Instead, the tray and everything on it vanished. You forget, Doctor, this universe is the reverse of yours. You sent your tea five minutes into the past, before even the thought of making tea existed in your mind. The Doctor rubbed his chin. Hmm, I can see my invention is unlikely to catch on here, he murmured half to himself. Well, let's dispense with the tea. What do you suggest we do next? Enough time wasting, Doctor. Time is too precious to squander. Let us proceed to the test. The doctor's tongue probed at the inside of his cheek, and he drew a sharp breath in through clenched teeth. The test? I thought there might be a catch in this somewhere. We will begin. The lights dimmed, only the doctor remaining lit by the alien pyramids. The TARDIS receded through half-light until it became invisible in the inky blackness. The doctor was alone once more with the alien. It is a simple test, Doctor, and the prize is the return of you and your companions to normal space in your time machine. Sounds like a worthwhile deal. What happens if I lose? I remove the force field I have placed around you. I'm sure you know what happens when matter meets antimatter. The Doctor leaned forward confidentially. Is that the first question, or haven't we started yet? He whispered. Anyway, the answer is bang, or gnab. Whichever way you look at it. By the way, might I have a chair? The three alien pyramids broke away from each other and began to circle the Doctor, behind whom a leather-bound chair miraculously appeared. The Doctor sat down. What is the secret of time? Oh, the easy ones first, eh? I can certainly tell you the answer to that one, said the Doctor, leaning back relaxed. Do you have a spare million hours or two while I explain? You are playing for your life, Doctor. Take care. The doctor spun his chair round so it revolved in the opposite direction to the rotating pyramids. Shall I tell you what I think, he said, and continued without waiting for an answer. You don't want to ask me about the secret of time at all. It's obvious you know as much, if not a great deal more than I do about it, for you to have captured the TARDIS and brought us here. So why bother asking? The alien pyramids circled his head in silence, their lights pulsing gently. A rhetorical question, we assume, doctor. Do go on. The doctor rested his hands on the arms of the chair, tapping gently with his fingers. I don't think I can answer that yet. Should we have another question? May give me a clue. Pyramids regrouped and hung motionless in the air before him. The doctor could feel the lights probing into his consciousness, seeking he knew not what. An instant later, he was sitting on a rock on a deserted planet's surface in daylight. The alien still kept its unshakable vigil. The doctor looked around him, taking in the surroundings. Ah, time for a change of scene, eh? commented the doctor. You don't need to impress me any more with your tricks, you know. I think they're very good. How do you do them, by the way? The alien ignored his comments. What is the principle behind the operation of the TARDIS? The doctor threw up his arms in exasperation. How long do I have to answer, he sighed. It's all very well asking questions like that. While you may have the time to take a crash course in space-time continuum engineering, I don't have the inclination to teach you. Concentrate, Doctor. It's imperative you answer. 
The doctor stood up and took a few steps away. I don't know about you, he began, but I need to stretch my legs. Perhaps we could come back to the questions later, but do try and think up something simpler, there's a good chap. We'll be here for eons otherwise. The doctor walked away slowly, his nerves and muscles tensed for what might come next. Stop! Where are you going? A walk, I told you. It is forbidden! Then prevent me, replied the doctor, who set off at a brisk pace towards a slight incline ahead, a smile growing on his face. The alien seemed confused. It split once more into three parts, a galaxy of lights flashing between them as if they were joined in heated discussion. It joined together again and raced after the doctor who was nearing the top of the rise and placed itself in his path. Go no further! Why, can't the one, the all-powerful, control me while I'm moving? Why don't you just stop me yourself? Doctor advanced cautiously towards the pyramids. It's because you can't, can you? Look out, shouted the doctor, suddenly stabbing a finger skywards. The alien twisted itself round to scan the direction indicated, and the doctor slipped past it with ease. Who would have thought an all-powerful would fall for an old trick like that? He grinned, but his expression changed to an altogether more thoughtful one as he reached the top of the small hill and gazed over it. Ah, now this is interesting, he mused as he looked down to see a haze of white emptiness, the hill fading progressively into nothing, like walking off the edge of a picture. The image began to shimmer as if it were about to change. The doctor steeled his thoughts to cling on to the landscape he could see, blotting out all the other images. The shimmering persisted for a few moments and then lessened until the image reformed. Do not resist. Concentrate on the question. What is the principle? You're a bit limited in your powers for an omniscient being, aren't you? Cut in the doctor, advancing on the alien determinedly. You're just an old fraud, really, aren't you? You really do want to know the secret of time and how the TARDIS works. It's not a test to check what I know because you don't know yourself. And it follows from that that you can't possibly have snatched a TARDIS through the matter-antimatter barrier. Ergo, we are still in normal space and you are not the all-powerful ruler of anti-space. The alien pyramid backed away, keeping out of reach. You have a vivid imagination, Doctor. Ah yes, imagination, said the Doctor. That's what all this is about, isn't it? Your manipulation of my imagination. What happened to the other Time Lords you met? I destroyed them. They would not tell me what I wanted to know. Ah, like you destroyed me just now. I may have let them go. I cannot remember. Doctor looked firmly and directly at the alien. The all-powerful can't remember, he said disbelievingly. It's not polite to tell lies, you know. No Time Lord has gone missing in this part of the galaxy in billions of years. And if they met the reigning power in the anti-universe, they'd be sure to have mentioned it to someone. I am all-powerful! We are the one! Temper, temper. I'm sorry if I spoiled your mind game. It took me a while to realise it was my own imagination you were employing to delude me. I will admit you tried hard, but I think you need a more powerful Ford Protection Unit. The pyramid spun violently in a blur of shape and lights. Well, have it your own way. I hate bad losers, but I must be off, concluded the Doctor, and he walked into the whiteness. Don't go, he heard the alien plead behind him. Please don't leave me. I'll tell you the truth this time.
The doctor continued walking into the blankness ahead, a white fog seeming to spring up and billow around him until, with a fading awareness, he began to feel himself lose consciousness, and the white atmosphere enveloped him. Doctor! Doctor! Are you alright? asked Romana, shaking him by the shoulders. His eyes opened and he blinked several times. Perfectly! Is there an alien in the house? What? asked Romana, convinced he must be delirious. The doctor stood up, stretched and walked over to the control console, casting a knowing glance over the readings. We're out of the antimatter storm, I take it. You are in error, Master, replied K-9. The flight has been smooth and uneventful. Until you passed out, added Romana, a couple of minutes ago. Ah, said the doctor, the light dawning on him. What's this about an alien, doctor? asked his companion. It's a long story, replied the doctor, but I think I've just had a meeting with an observational satellite from another galaxy. At a guess, I'd say it had travelled this far and either run out of power or been damaged so that it couldn't go any further. It's probably been here for thousands of years, waiting hopefully to make contact with something. It latched onto the TARDIS as we passed and took over my mind in an attempt to discover some way it could continue its explorations. It tried to threaten me into giving the answers by making me think I was in anti-space and completely at its mercy. It succeeded for a while, too. Then how did you discover it was all in your mind? Its ability to create illusions for me, or to distort my sense of reality, was actually limited to only short periods of time and space. As soon as I began questioning the validity of its statements and concentrating my mind against its limited power, it was incapable of sustaining the illusion. It depended on my willing suspension of disbelief. So long as I believed what it said, I would believe what I saw. As soon as I doubted, the task became too difficult for it. Are you sure you've not been dreaming? Have we stopped? Yes, said Romana. I put the TARDIS into emergency stasis as soon as you fainted. I didn't faint. I was taken over by an alien machine. Look, he turned on the scanner screen and made it do a 360 degree scan around the TARDIS exterior. Halfway round, the familiar shape of the three pyramids appeared, floating in space. There, said the Doctor triumphant. It was a rather amiable little machine, really, quite intelligent. The next advanced planet we come to, we'll give them its location and have them pick it up. Is that wise? asked Romana seriously. How can you be so cruel, Romana, said the doctor. It's just a lonely, harmless machine, just dying to have someone to talk to. I can't just leave it on its own there, can I, canine? No, master, it should be given the opportunity to fulfil its function. I knew you'd understand, canine. Beneath that hard, cold exterior beats a heart of impeccable logic. And the doctor bent down to give his computerised dog an affectionate pat. <laughs> Oh!